Well, we're here again around the bride to enjoy another great On The Whistle podcast. Today we have with us one of the Arsenal greats, the true Colchester gunner who's won two league titles at Arsenal and a league cup. A gentleman who once tried to teach me the world in motion rap, uh, the one and only Mr. Perry Groves. Thank you for joining us today. How you doing, Courtney? Thanks for being my agent, yeah? Terry, it's a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for making the time um, uh, to talk to us. Uh, you, you, you're such a great speaker. I listen to you consistently on Talk, uh, talk Sports and uh, love the views you and Simon Jordan share. So thank you very much for coming on today. Yeah, some of them are the same and some of them are completely different, mate. Trust me. Simon just needs uh, sort of railing in a little bit sometimes. Get him down off his hobby horse and he's all right. Very true, very true. So, Pity, let's just get straight into us. You know, um, you were one of George Graham's first signings. Just do us a favour. Tell us about what did George Graham bring to Arsenal at the time he came in as manager? I'd been tapped up when I was playing for Colchester. And there was another ginger lad playing up front called Tony Adcock, scoring bundles of goals. So, they always come in to watch him. And lucky enough, I started playing quite well. And... Um, been tapped up by Crystal Palace when Steve Coppel was manager because they had a young team in the second division. And then uh, my financial advisor uh, phoned me up. And I don't know why I had a financial advisor because he'd advised me what I could do with the money that I did and then charged me for, um, for the privilege. So it was a bit weird, to be fair. I was only about 150 quid a week. So, um, and then he phoned me on Tuesday, the 2nd of September and said, Arsenal's been in for you. Just had a bit of 75 grand um, accepted. We're going up to Highbury on the 4th of September. And I, my second word was off. I went, yeah, right. Because he knew I was a massive gooner. All my family gooners going back to the 50s with Vic Groves, uh, my Uncle Vic. And he knew that I was a gooner. And I'm like, nah, I, you don't go from culture to Arsenal. It's, you know, in the fourth division to the first division, one of the biggest clubs in the world. It doesn't work that way. So on the, on the Thursday, I remember getting on the train and he kept saying to me, right, when we get to Highbury, get to him. I went, look, do us a favour, John. Stop it. It's not funny. You're like, the joke's gone far enough. I know I'm going to... Palace. So go on to Liverpool Street, get on the tube, get on the um, circle line and then go around to King's Cross and then King's Cross. Then we go on. I said, you're being really cruel now, John. Like, you know, this, this is going too far. This is actually going into like abuse. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> that ain't funny because I still think I'm going to Palace. So we come out of um, Arsenal Tube Station. We turn left, turn right into Avenel Road and go up the hill. And the way that my brain works is I thought I know what's happening because I've been tapped up. This is a clandestine meeting. We're in North London. It's a South London club who want me. Do you know what I mean? We can't be seen, blah, blah, blah. And we walked up to the Marble Halls at Highbury. And in the old days, there used to be a commissionaire called Nobby who was on outside the Marble Halls all the time with his full regalia on, cap, lapels, you know, all brass buttons, whatever. And he said, um, good morning, uh, Mr. Hazel, which is my um, agent. Uh, welcome to the... Highbury. And I thought, how does he know he's not? Oh, no, because he was George Graham's advisor as well, right? So I went, oh, he knows. And he went, good morning, Mr. Groves. And I thought, oh, my good God, he knows my name. How does he know what, what's going on here? My, my head just exploded. And I thought, this is actually, this is true. I'm, I'm coming in here for, like, any inverted commas transfer, to, you know what I mean, to talk to George Graham. And Ken Fryer came down the marble stairs and said, morning, Mr. Hazel, morning, Mr. Groves, the manager see up in his office. And I, my, I, my head was just a blur. I can't. I can remember going up the marble hall, you know, upstairs to his massive office with his big oak door, 
he sat in this. Have you seen the Wizard of Oz where you where you meet him and he's in the massive chair? Right. Yeah. So in this massive Absolutely. chair. Absolutely. And he put me on a little milking stall. <laughs> so I was looking up. So we had that power. Um, and what he was doing, he was said to me, I remember the meeting to this day when I was in, um, listening to him. He said, I've seen you play. I've been following you for about four or five years. Tried to buy you when you was at money. He said, there's complacent. Too many players here uh, who ain't uh, putting in. They said, they're very talented, but they don't work hard enough. He said, I'm changing that. He said, you're going to be my first signing. He said, you're very raw. He said, um, but I'm going to have a team full of desire and passion and heart. He said, and that's what you've got. And I can't put that into anybody. I can teach you tactics. I can make you better technically, but I can't put a heart into a player. Um, and he, and he, again, where he noticed me, he was, George used to be manager of QPR youth team. And I played for Colts youth team against QPR youth team on the old plastic pitch at Loftus Road. And we were getting beat 7-0, I think it was. They had a load of England internationals and we had like just kids from school. Mm. And he said, I remember you from that game. And I thought, ah, oh. I said, he must have. I said, what, did I play well then, um, Mr. Graham, like that? He went, no. Nah. He said, all you did, you just run around and you moaned and groaned at everybody. He said, you was booting everybody because you lost your temper. He said, but that stuck in my head that you it, it bothered you. Even your team's losing 6 or 7 nil. That, you know, that, that's the, it's a weird thing. I always say to my two boys, Lewis and Drew, when they're playing sport, give everything you have for the whole duration that you're playing, whatever it is. And then you can come off and look at yourself and think, I couldn't have done anymore. And it started from there. And he said, um, <laughs> he said, right, my dad said to me, because he thought I'd go to Palace. Right? My dad yeah. said to me, when you go in, boy, for your negotiations, they'll offer you low money. Um, you'll want higher. He said, don't accept the first offer. Be, be polite and just say, Okay, I think I'm worth more than that. So George Graham says to me, right, Perry, uh, we're going to offer you 350 quid a week. And I was on 150 quid at Colchester, so I thought I'm going to buy a helicopter. Do you know what I mean? I'll buy a boat. <laughs> it's, like, it's major, major money. And, um, so he said, we'll give you a three-year contract, which I never, ever had. A, I always had the time year to year. He said, we'll give you £5,000 signed on fee, £5,000 disturbance allowance, which means to help me move like to London. It'd be 150 quid. Um, appearance money in the first team, but don't worry about that because you get nowhere near the first team for about a year. I think, oh, thanks very much. 350 quid a win uh, in the first team. Um, so I remembered what my dad said, right? And I thought, play hardball, look him in the eyes, give you a shark stare like you're playing poker and say to him, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Graham, for that offer. But I think I want more than that. I want £500 a week. I want um, £250 appearance money and uh, £10,000 solemn fee, right? That's what I thought I was going to say. And out of my mouth came, thank you very much, Mr. Graham, where do you want me to sign? Give me again. <laughs> so, but there was, there was no negotiation. There was no, no, I can't negotiate coming from Colchester. Do you know what I mean? He's doing me a favour. So, um, and he just said it, and you asked about what he was going to do, and he said, I'm going to change that culture. That's what I'm doing. This, this is going to be a big club again under me, because obviously he'd won the double, you know, in 70-71. He said, we've lost our way. He said, it's going to take me a while. He said, but you're going to be the first of many signings uh, with players from, with like uh, raw passion and heart, um, and uh, in the he told me that they'd bought me for seventy five grand, and in the paper it was fifty grand. So God knows what happened to that other twenty five. <laughs> don't start the rumours, Perry. <laughs> I'm just, just saying there was two different figures. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> no, that, that's 
that's absolutely fantastic. That's, uh, what a story uh, already that, uh, that says to us the culture of the man, what he wanted to bring to the club. And just, he, he spoke about heart and effort. That's fantastic, you know. He, that's what he was looking for. Um, what a great way to start, you know. Uh, George Graham uh, laying his foundation at Arsenal and you were part of that. And if you look, go ahead. Yeah, if you look, Courtney, the players that he signed, like, obviously, I was the first, which was a big a big gamble for him because normally when you're a manager, you, you want a big stellar signing, didn't you? Everybody thought, who the bloody hell is that? This gingerhead, like, sort of cunt bumpkin coming up from Colchester. <laughs> but um, So he was quite brave to sign someone who no one really heard of. Then he, think, then he signed Steve Bold, Lee Dixon, Nigel Byrne, Alan Smith, Kevin Richardson, um, you know, so he, he took all these players. People forget all of these players were playing in um, the old Division 2, which is obviously now the Championship or League 1, League 2, I come from. So he was true to his word and he gradually eased really good players out. They were, they were top players like Kenny Sansom, International, Graham Ricks, Steve Williams, Viv Anderson, Charlie Nicholas. Um, but he did it. It was um, an evolution rather than revolution. Do you know what I mean? He, he knew he needed to play. He couldn't get them all out at once because um, he wanted. He knew that we would buy into what he want. We wanted. He wanted us to do. Do you know what I mean? We would run through a field of like thistles for him if he wanted us to. Well, you asked the question earlier on who is Perry Groves. I, I'll tell you. Um, growing up in South Africa, uh, you were hit amongst my friends in my neighbourhood where I was the only Liverpool supporter and everyone was an Arsenal supporter. Everyone wanted to be a Perry Groves flying down the wing. So <laughs> that's who you were. <laughs> a lot of my mates are very jealous that we're having this conversation today. Was there a little ginger enclave somewhere in South Africa then, was there? Like a village full of red-headed people just running around with their heads <laughs> like going to explode. <laughs> well, Perry, what I'm going to do next, I'm going to, I'm going to get a question from one of our fans. Uh, his name is Radlin. Uh, he lives in England and he's got a question for you. So I'm going to play it and let's just see um, what you think. Hi, Perry, mate. Hope you're well. First of all, I'd like to say I'm so happy for the opportunity to ask an Arsenal legend like yourself <clears throat> a lot of questions about the Arsenal. My first question to you would be, how did it feel, the famous night at Anfield in 1989? And has anything else compared to that in your playing career? How about we answer the first question, please, Perry? Um, it, it's a surreal, um, even now, <clears throat> I get goosebumps. I know if you've seen a DVD that came out, 89, where you know, yes, we yeah. all contributed to it. And um, people forget, leading up to that game, we were in shocking form. You know, we'd uh, drawn a couple of home games. Uh, so I'd drawn against Wimbledon, 2-2, uh, and we thought we'd blown it. Liverpool beat West Ham 5-1 on that Tuesday night. And no one really gave us a chance. The only person who really, really believed that we could beat him by two goals was our manager. Because he sat us down at London Coney. He went, because I phoned up Merce when it was 5-1. I went, that's it, we've come second. And we, we'd been 11 points clear. Do you know what I mean? So we, if we hadn't won that game, we could have been... Um, leveled us that we bottled it. Do you know what I mean? So, uh, so I, me and Merce went, oh, we've come second. And sat us all down and he had a team meeting. He went, lads, great result last night. We're thinking, is he sure? Like, it was 5 1. We've got no chance. He went, I really fancy our chances. They think they've won the title already. They won the FA Cup. They'll be a bit like, maybe a bit relaxed. He said, I love the fact we've got to go there and win by two clear goals and I'm going to play three centre halves. And we all looked at each other and we all thought, is he gone mad? Why are we playing? an extra centre-half 
when we have to score two goals. We saw it as a, a negative thing. Do you know what I mean? We're, we're thinking, even he doesn't believe we're going to go and uh, beat him. So, we, you know, we're going to try and not get beat. He went, I'm going to play three centre-backs. He said, um, and we cannot concede a goal. He said, and we're good at, you know, we were very well organised. And we hadn't played three centre-halves, I think, once all season. We, we're always 4-4-2. That's how, we, that's how we set up, closing down. And it just shows you as well how good the players were tactically and intelligence-wise to take on a new system, you know, straight away. And, um, and he'd watched, um, sorry, he'd read a book, I think it was called by Desmond Morris, called The Naked Ape. And it was about, about tribalism and, um, and gorillas and primates. Hey, they have mm. their territory and they don't want other people coming into their territory. And he saw us as he wanted us to go into Liverpool, have our pre-match meal, have a rest in the hotel, get to the stadium, play and get out of there. He said, because if we'd have gone up the night before, we were in enemy territory with all the negativity and all the scousers, Liverpool fans going, oh, you're going to get hammered tomorrow. You've got no chance. And he didn't want that. So, like, psychologically, he was a long way, not just tactically, but that little, you know, those little details. And, um, and he said to us, he said, we get in nil-nil at our time. He said, um, I really fancy our chances. He said, they'll start to have a bit of a panic, a bit of a wobble. He said, if we score, it's game on. He said, no, old Chuck Hazy and Grokes, he had very rarely did he have two uh, forwards or subs either. It was always a uh, forward and the defender, you know, to obviously to cover all bases. And he said, if we, if we score, he said, they're panic. And the first half <clears throat> weren't bad, um, but it was loads of tackles sliding. And we got in nil-nil at half time. And it's the only time ever in a team talk that he didn't criticise anybody. Before we could be four, three or four new up, and he'd go, Grovesy, not holding the ball up enough. Smudge, you've got to get in the box. Kevin Richardson, you've got to get closer. Fullbacks ain't pushing up. He'd always put, bring out something that was going wrong. We'd think, all right, calm down. We're freeing him up here. And it was a nil nil, and he said, everybody was brilliant. He went and said, back the centre halves, like Rodgers, Boldy, and Dave O'Leary. He said, you're nice and tight, like it. Um, then it was on the left hand side. Nigel Winton was pushed on to Ray Houghton, the right-hand side, Lee Dixon pushed on John Bart. He said, doing great jobs, midfield. Maybe we could be a bit more threat going forward, he said, but that's brilliant. He said, that's exactly right. And um, we were like, is he right? <laughs> he, was like, he, never, he never said, well done. So, um, and in the second half, when Smudge scored, when it came off the end of his nose, and then <laughs> I, actually, I actually saw, I was obviously on the bench, and I saw the tension go into Liverpool players' faces. You could tell that their body language and in their head, that was like, this is Aston, we can lose this now. And you're talking top players. You know, you're talking people like John Barnes, like Steve McMahon, uh, Steve Nicholl. Do you know what I mean? So you could tell the tension. And then he chucked Hazy on before me and I had the raving ump because I wanted to get on. I wanted to get on. I thought, he put him on before me? And I was doing cartwheels past him when I was doing me warm up and like juggling just to make sure I could catch his eye. And um, then he chucked me on. And then the goal, which, which people don't realise, it is the, it's the greatest goal ever in English football history. Trust me, not just because I'm a gooner, but what it meant, you know what I mean? And the timing of it uh, and the coolness of Michael Thomas. But quite right, everybody reveres the finish because it was so cool. It was, he could sleep on the clothesline, Tom. It was, it was great. It, if it had me, I'd have smacked it against the crossbar and the ball to come out because I'd have panicked and thought, oh, I just didn't get a shot on target. But that goal started from in our bottom left-hand corner, um, left back position where Kevin Richardson, little chicken legs with his ankles, uh, socks down his ankles. He ran into the corner and dispossessed John Barnes. And God knows why John Barnes didn't go and run it in the court these days. You'd be hammered now, wouldn't you, if you don't put the ball in the corner and just keep it there. So I remember yeah. that. Yeah. 
So Richo tackles him. So if you don't get one of your centre midfield players doing the horrible stuff and tackling back in the 94th minute, you don't get your other midfield player going to score at the other end. So that epitomised what we were about. And then, like, he, he goes, uh, Richo passed it back to Lukey. Lukey was going to boot it, but his legs are gone. So, so Lee Dixon said he tried to run away. <laughs> He's like, he thought, I don't want the ball. And Lukey throws it to him. And that goal, the whole thing was muscle memory. We'd gone through that move thousands of times on the training field, like repetition. Right back gets it. Winger goes wide, first centre forward, Alan Smith shows, second centre forward, me runs to the halfway line, uh, to the touch line. So obviously I took the whole back four away because they knew where the danger was. And then that was that was top players doing the right thing at the right time in the biggest moment of their career. And when when Tomo runs through and I was on the obviously on the right wing turning round and it, it just looked like slow motion. It, I, I was thinking for God's sake, Thomas, shoot, you're going to, like, shoot, we're all shouting at him, shoot. And when you look at him, court, right, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. Ray Houghton, I spoke to him about it, he was going to bring him down. But because <laughs> Tomo had missed a sitter beforehand, he thought he'll bottle it, he, you know, it's been on his mind. Steve Nicholl looks like he's going to get him, I think Zanna Hansen looks like, and he waits for Bruce Crobler just to lose his balance, and just his body just goes to the right-hand side, and Bruce thought he'd had him, he thought he'd, you know, stood up. And he just flicks it like into the bottom corner, and you think, "Oh my good God, he's just scored!" Oh, I can't. And then, um, if my media training was better, I should have run over to where Tomo and Martin A's were to get in all the photos because Nigel run behind the goal, but we run straight over to the Arsenal fans over in the right hand corner. So I wasn't old gutted. I wasn't any photos. But for Guna to be on the pitch, you know, like a fan, I'm a fan, mate, and I just went into fan mode. I just just lost it, and you think, "Oh." We've got another couple of minutes yet. And um, and right at the end of the game, I tried to um, foul Steve Nicholl because I wanted to get a book in. In the old days, you got a letter from the FA uh, saying whether you got three points or four points. So I wanted to clean him out so I could get that letter from the FA for part of that game and put it up on my wall. But I missed him. <laughs> he jumped <laughs> He jumped over me and then the referee blew the whistle. And then that was, then it was just carnage, mate. It was just, just like, we was all in the days. It was unbelievable. Perry, that is just just your memory and the detail of that answer is unbelievable. Just listening to how you remember the events and also incorporated the training. And the thing that shocks me as well, it's what you're saying to me is that the last game of the season, the biggest game of the season, the manager changes a formation. You'll start playing three at the back. Yeah. Not having played it the whole season. Exactly. Yeah. But that's the thing is because he trusted the players. And what happens when you're playing at the top level, as I said, the players do the right things 95% of the time. Whereas the lower levels you've got down, the players are talented, but they do the right things 70% of the time. You go a bit lower, 60%, 50%. So say for him to change it and for Boldy, um, Rodders, Tony Adams and Dave O'Leary to gel, you know, the three of them, you'd, you'd have thought we'd been playing that system all season. Well... That's the minor details that we didn't know. But let's finish off on Radlin's question because he did say he has two. Here comes the second part of it. Secondly, I'd love to get your opinion on the current Arsenal manager, Mikel Oteta, which I personally have been so impressed with so far. Thank you very much and take care, Radlin. It's a great question, Radlin, to be fair, because I have to admit at the time, 
it was uh, well in all the papers. It might it was between Carlo Ancelotti and Mikel Arteta who was coming, and everybody was saying, "Oh, Arteta would be great. He's Guardiola's coach. You know, he's learned of him." Anybody can coach under Guardiola. Do you know what I mean? It's like you're just putting the cones and the balls and the bibs out, whatever. And um, I thought at the time it was um, not a good sign because obviously our owners aren't known for spending their money. And I just thought it was because they couldn't afford Carlo Ancelotti, couldn't afford him and couldn't afford the demands that he was going to have, you know, wanting players to go and get them. But I've got to say, Arteta's come in and he, he's done exactly what George Graham did. Exactly the same. The, the culture was a bit too comfortable players were a bit too complacent. There was mixed messages from Noy Emery and his team selections and, the, you know, some of the formations he was playing. And he went in there and he had a zero tolerance. He said, the bottom line is you give it everything. You give it everything you have, 100% in training, in games. I'll give you a structure to play and I'll give you the information. You try and carry that out for me and I'll, I'll, you're, I'll be with you. Do you know what I mean? You'll be one of mine. If you don't, you can do one. And he is put that policy in place and he knows he's getting better to, we forget he's learning his trade as well so you know he's a young manager so he's learning his, his way tactically through games but I love the way that he, he's no nonsense I love the way that we've got our, I think we've got our pride back I think we've got our pride in that cannon back again and as a goon in which you know that I am I realised football cyclical where obviously we had success when like, I was there we had the Arsene Wenger years where we dominated everybody which was great but football cyclical. So, you know, these dynasties come to an end. But as an Arsenal fan, all I want to do is see my team uh, give everything they've got. That's the prerequisite. You give 100% and they're doing that. And with the structure that he's given them and with the belief that they can go and play and responsibility, there's an a, um, unbelievable culture, cultural change there in, you know, what he's doing. And, I, um, and what you do is you, you have to trust him. And I, I think he's give us... They, people talk about identities these days. Now, when you see an Arsenal team play, you know you've got to work your nuts off to beat them. And that wasn't the case in the last sort of five, six months under Unai Emery. Now, you've, that's so true. Because the manager coming in has become such a demanding manager of the players. And he wants that honesty of them. And you've, you've touched on a few answers for my next question I want to look at you, Petty. You know, uh, this former player that you guys had, Mikel Arteta, uh, come from Everton, plays under Arsene Wenger, goes and does his coaching and his assistant work under Pep Guardiola. What do you think is the one thing he's taken from both of those managers that he's currently incorporating into his management at Arsenal? Well, I think under Arsene, I think Arsene was a, a very, very good man manager. Obviously, Arsene saw into the human side of people. Do you know what I mean? He saw into the psyche. And um, obviously, he was a brilliant talent spotter when he was first there because no one had really heard of Vieira. They no one heard of Carlo Torre. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, Dennis was there beforehand. So, Arsene was very, very good at what, watching and spotting natural talent. But then Arsene was a manager who lets the players go and express themselves and work it out for themselves. But he wanted him to play, right? He wanted him to play the beautiful game. Whereas, I think with Arteta from Pep Guardiola, I think he does structure team out where he wants the high energy press. He wants people closing down. When you lose the ball, he wants to win it back very, very quickly. And everybody's got their jobs, you know. Even if you look and the, the impact he's had, I saw Nicolas Pepe track back three or four times in the cup final. I hadn't seen that before. Aubameyang, the great player that he is, he actually tracks back. Do you know what I mean? So he expects his, you know, the top players, the flair players to do their work as well. And uh, and I think it's a hats off to him as well because he's, he's 
title's been changed now, hasn't it? From uh, from uh, coach, first team coach to manager. And what that says to me is he is now in total control of every player that comes in and goes out of that football club where it was a transfer committee before. So I think it's him and Ed, Ed you, um who, who makes decisions. And if you look as well, he's probably learned from Pep Guardiola to get onto the human side of people, but he, he doesn't tolerate people who are uh, disruptive. If you look what he's done with Gwenduzi, when, you know, he was late in training in, in Dubai, then got to be at Bubby Station, then you had the, the fracar at Brighton when he's running around to everybody out asking how much they're earning, I've got more money. He's like, no, 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 we, we ain't having that. You can do one, mate. Uh, Mesut Ozil, if he doesn't train properly, then he hasn't been playing. And what happens is the other players, if they see that Arteta's doing that to Mesut Ozil, right, on 350 grand a week, the other players think, bloody hell, if you can do that to him, what's he going to do to me if I start playing up? So then, you know, so you know where, like, the, the bottom line is. And so, as I say, I, I just think he's learned from all the matter. But he's his own man. Don't make me, he's, he's his own person. I don't think he'll, Guardiola tries to be too tactically cute sometimes and a bit, you know, look how clever I am. I don't think Arteta's going to go down that route. But everybody, everybody knows their job. He's very clear in his instructions. 32. And uh, his instructions are clear to see for the players. Uh, since we've come back uh, out of lockdown and the league has started, Arsenal have looked excellent. Uh, the, the players look like they have a lot of belief in them and they also look like they understand exactly what their expectations the manager wants from each of them. So, uh, yeah, th that is clear to see. Um, and long may it continue with them. But just moving on at the moment, um, Perry, we... we have just seen that uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang has uh, signed his new contract. Uh, this is a huge hit for Arsenal at the moment. Now, as someone that played on the wing, more or less blending into a striker, uh, what do you, does the untrained eye miss in the player that we are currently seeing, that you are picking up? What, with Aubameyang? Yes. He has a, an inner belief... And an, an innate ability that he never thinks he's going to miss. He ne it never ever crosses his mind when he gets in. If he's got his trademark coming in for the left now, and he's bending it in the far right corner. But people say, "Why can't you stop that?" Well, no one can stop Lionel Messi doing these, can he? Where he comes in from the right and bends it in. But he he's very very cool. If you look at him in his finishing, there's it, you can work on your technique, you can work on your positional play, but sometimes it's a, a natural. Uh, reaction, you you anticipate where the ball's going to be. You you already, and if you look at the goal against Fulham, when he gets the crossfield ball from Willian, which is a great ball, like from right to left, he doesn't even think about the chest control. In his mind, I would be thinking, lesser players like me, going, you think, right, I better chest this properly. You know, I better concentrate on my chest touch first, then I'll think about shooting. If you look the way he brings the ball down, he, rela he relaxes it. It rolls down his body. He had, he didn't even think about that he wasn't going to control it. He was thinking about what I'm going to do the next bit. That's the difference in the real top players. He was thinking about, as this comes off my chest, I'm going to move it out my feet. I'm going to bend it in the top corner. That's as the ball's travelling to him. Whereas I'll be thinking, make sure you get that ball under control first. Then I'd worry about what I was doing. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'd worry about where the ball was. So... Um, and he could not he could not touch the ball. I've seen him play for us when we weren't playing so well under Unai Emery. He might not touch the ball for, for 20 minutes. And you think, oh, he's drifted out of the game. And a lot of other players would be panicking, thinking, you know, I've, I've got to go and get the ball. 
He doesn't. He saves all his energy for where he needs to go into the box. And if you look at his goal scoring ratio, which is amazing, he he's what I call a one in two. Like you give him two chances, he'll score one. And it, there's never any doubt about it. And he he doesn't doubt himself. If he misses, that doesn't play on his mind. Like again, someone like me who's not wasn't a natural striker. If I missed, I'd be thinking, oh my god, what am I doing? You know that sort of play. For, I better not miss the next one. That makes you tense. He doesn't. He's like, don't worry. A bit like Ian Wright used to be. Right, <laughs> right. It was brilliant, even in training or in games. You go and score in a minute. It was one score in a minute, and he'd be saying it on the pitch to the centre half. Score in a minute. You want to watch it? I'm going to score. I'll score in a minute, and then he'd score. And go. Told you, Norwood. So they're they're like that. That's 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 their mindset. They're they're a different breed, and I know we're in difficult times. But if there's a player um, that has earned the right to have the money that they're earned, it is Aubameyang. And I'm looking forward, because I do the tours at the Emirates, I'm lucky enough to see what different colour Lamborghinis is. He comes in like yellow ones, and then there's black ones, and then there was a, a silvery purple one. Um, but I got a, a real rollicking from one of his kids. I tried to take a picture of Joseph and Mrs. Bite. No, you can't take pictures out. Don't want, don't take pictures. So no, pretend it's mine. <laughs> Uh, honestly, um, and just talking about the some of the things you were mentioning there about his goal that he scored against uh, Fulham. Um, I'm going. I'm looking at the other goal he scored against Liverpool during the Charity Shield. A very similar type goal coming in from the left, using that technique and such an accomplished finish, which was so Thierry Henry esque. Uh, what similarities do you see between the two of them at the moment? I, I think with Thierry. I don't think, I think Aubameyang's always been a natural-born goal scorer. I think he's always scored loads of goals where Thierry became a, a, a top goal scorer. Do you know what I mean? When he came to Arsenal and it's that uh, drifting out to the left-hand side and cutting in. They're very, very similar. Both very, very quick. I think they both like playing with another striker. You think with Thierry, Dennis Bergkamp used to drop off, didn't he? And like hold the ball up and have his assists. I think um, Aubameyang is far better when Lacazette plays. I, I like Lacazette up front, like holding it. People don't realise the work that he does when he holds it up. He like um, gets in between centre-halves and he occupies them. Do you know what I mean? So I, I think they've got a real a good uh, relationship, those two. You know, a mutual respect. Um, and Lacazette took it well, actually, because you think when uh, Aubameyang came, Lacazette was the main man. He was playing, but he was playing very, very well up front and scoring a few goals. So, although he's outputting goals-wise, it's dropped a bit, but obviously he got to go at the weekend, which is great. He could go on a run now. He might get eight in the next ten. But um, when he was first there, he was playing Nketiah up front. And as good as Eddie is, and he's like very raw goal scorer, he's still got a bit to learn on the holding upside. I think Lacazette gives us more that way. But Aubameyang's, yeah, I think he's always been that natural-born goal scorer. Now, you, you, you started moving into other players within the team at the moment. And um, I think for this for this season, it's going to be a big season for Arsenal. But who do you currently think that's also in the Arsenal team is going to be a big player for Arsenal this year, besides Pierre-Emerick? Cool. I'll tell you what, that was seamless. You've done this before, haven't you? You see that transition? You see that, you see that little angle there? <laughs> <laughs> um, I... The, the one who impressed me last season was um, Saka. And again, he's a very humble lad, apparently. I was talking to Steve Bold about him. And I said to Boldy, every time I see Saka play, he, he makes the right decision at the right time. 
when he gets into the box, whether he's got to cut it back, whether he's got to chip it to the far post, whether he's got to roll across six-yard box, he makes the right decision. Again, you can practice and practice and practice, but your football and game intelligence has to, you know, tell you what to do. And Boldy said he's like that in training all the time. He never misses, the, he never picks out the wrong pass. He never play, plays the wrong cross. He always puts the right pace on the ball. And Boldy was saying, he's that good. This is how good Steve Bold thinks he is. He said, if he continues on his trajectory that he's going and he stays home and works hard, he said that he could see he's good enough. If, say, Real Madrid came in for him, he said he's, he's good enough. If they were going, you know, looking for a Galactico or whatever, he said he'd be good enough to play on any stage. And that's how, that's how good he, that's how good he is. Um, the yeah. thing that impressed me about him, Perry, um, and I'm going back to the charity shield, um, was the pass to Pierre Emerick Aubameyang for the goal. He, he hit it from the right hand side of the pitch all the way. As a youngster on a big pitch, uh, such a matured long uh, drive to to free and find a, a Aubameyang. Uh, you can see that there's a lot of potential in that youngster. Well, that, that's the point, what you just said there, picking out the right pass at the right time, having the technique and having the confidence in not to pick out the easy ball. There's too many players now who pay it sideways to keep possession or, you know, not to give it. He sees he sees the pitch. The thing he hasn't got, though, where's two things. Uh, he needs a long throw because <laughs> that's very underestimated these days. And he's he needs to put, like, tight shorts on as a winger. That's, what, that's, that's a prerequisite. Long throw, tight shorts. <laughs> now you know you're talking about your manager your current manager you're talking about all the players in the team that are working to as you know what the manager's instructions are and in the background you have Mesut Ozil who not so long ago was in the Real Madrid team absolutely grinding on fantastic results a wonderful skillful player do you think there's a way back into the team for a player like him at this stage in his career? If he really wants it, yeah, because Arteta said he, he's a big one on training. And I think sometimes Mesut's body language doesn't do him any good. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes he, he looks lazy. Um, and that the thing, I, I don't think, we were talking about player psychologies, wasn't we, earlier in your mindset. I think the situation with him and Germany, you know, with the fallout from... Uh, with, German football fans, because he had a meeting with er Erdogan, um, the Turkish uh, president, Erdogan, and, um, and he was vilified and ostracised by German fans. It, he's, he went through, I think he's where he said, well, they don't see him as German. Do you know what I mean? He said, you're not. And he thinks, hold on a minute, I'm, I've won the World Cup for you. I've been one of your best players the last 20 years. And because they've sort of disowned him, I think that's a, had a big uh, impact on on your own sort of identity and where you belong. And um, and then he had the situation with the carjacking, didn't he? Where um, the thieves didn't realise he had like Kalashnikov with him. You don't, you pick the wrong car chaps. <laughs> and he jumps out and says, right, I'll beat all of you up. Um, so I think that had a an effect. And the fr frustrating thing with Mesut Ozil is, I've been lucky enough to watch him play live at, as yourself, uh, Courtney at the Emirates. And he can do things with a football that I haven't seen anybody else do. He makes the ridiculously difficult look unbelievably easy. And when you've seen, you know, you have the Cruyff turn, which no one has seen before, and Jan Cruyff does it. You know, you have foot overs. You go, oh, wow. I'd never seen a player bump the ball into the ground to put it over the goalkeeper. When I first saw him do that, I thought, I oh, he's kick that. And then you watch it on the screen on the, in the big, you know, jumbotrons at, at the Emirates. And 
everybody goes, oh, as if to say, oh my God, what has he just done? And you watch it again and he kicks the ball into the ground. So the ball then bounces up over the guy. And you just think, has, has he thought about doing that? And um, there was a Leicester game. I don't think it was last season before. We beat them 3-1 at the uh, at the Emirates on a Monday or a Tuesday night, I think it was. And he, he was like watching the Martian play. He was on a different planet to everybody else. He, he just completely strolled through the game like he was playing a charity game, controlled it. And my frustration with him as it is, over a six-game period, he'll do that for one game. And he'll do he'll play good for one more, but the other four, he'll drift in out of it. Where my frustration is, go and get, you've got to do that over a six-game period, do it in four games. Do you know what I mean? Be brilliant in four, and then maybe have one or two average ones. And it's just like, go and work harder to get the ball. Go and get it. Go and impose yourself on the games. And I think the game tends to drift by him. And I think with Arteta, when I mentioned earlier that he wants people closing down, Mezit will do it, but he doesn't like doing it. Do you know what I mean? It's like a, it's a laboured closing down, whereas everybody else is very intense. Where Mezit's like, all right, I'll go and do it, but I'm not really going to try and win the ball because, you know, that's not my game. I think there's a bit of that there as well. So, um, But he's, it's in his... It's, it, Arteta said, didn't he, at the beginning of the season, it's a, a clean slate now. You you work and you look at El Nini. El Nini's been away on, on loan. He's come back straight in because his attitude's good and he's playing when he played very well against Fulham, didn't he? Passing forward, which was a new string to his uh, sort of his bow. So every everybody starts and it's up to them to work. You work, it'll give you a chance. Perry, the one thing that, uh, and just listening to some of the things you've just said there, I think the one thing that the current Arsenal players have is that they know they, they have a manager that's able to almost resurrect their careers. Look at Mustafi. Look at Jacka. Plays who I thought were going out of your club, El Neni. So, like you're saying, um, there, there is an opportunity there for us because this manager is maybe using the psyche part and he's turning players around and, and, and with improved performances. Well, if you look at um, Mustafi, um, I want to keep, because I need the ginger in there. We've got to keep the ginger flag flying, so... We need that. But um, with, with Granit Xhaka, the reason that uh, Arteta likes him is he likes players that will take responsibility. And Granit Xhaka takes responsibility. Playing in that, he's given him a bit more discipline. If you look now, he ain't picking up no, nearly as many silly bookings as what he did before with silly challenges or getting caught the wrong side. But he likes players who accept the ball, which Granit Xhaka does. And it's not until Granit Xhaka doesn't play, then Arsenal fans realise... We're missing someone in the midfield who actually can pass it and keep us like keep the ball moving and pass it forward in his passing range. So, and for him to come back from where he came from after you know the trouble when he was substituted and which I understood because I was booed by my own fans and that's the worst feeling you could ever ever had when you get booed by your own fans. Taking the shirt off and throw it on the floor was totally out of order. That's that's where he done himself to be fair. So, um, but the hurt and pain that he would have felt by being booed and vilified by trust me. Court, you, you, you wouldn't realise what that's like, honestly. Um, so, but him working his way back in shows that he's very strong mentally and that's what you need. You need. So if Bamiang wasn't captain, would you be adverse to if, if Granit Xhaka became captain? Wouldn't bother me. No. Um, he led the team before. The team looked stable under him. And maybe he was just waiting for this manager to be the good player he currently is showing. So, yeah. Uh, wouldn't be an issue for me as well. So, 
now you have a manager you have Harry. He's putting all the components together. He's got youth. He's got experience. He's got a wonderful coaching uh, staff with him. He's got these new ideas. Uh, he's got yourself, the, the, the giants of 89 behind him. What do you think is a realistic expectation for Arsenal for the season? At the moment, I would say uh, fourth is very gettable. For I, I thought under Emery that we, we'd lost our way completely. Uh, and the good thing about it is the mob up the road are crumbling. So we're in the sense they've had their they've had their little chirpiness for a couple of years. They can get back in their bunkers now. So they've they're like gonna implode. So um yeah, it's only <clears throat> last year was only a ten point gap, <clears throat> you know, for four for us. That's very, very closable. Um winning the FA Cup, it's it's I'm an old traditionalist. I'd rather win the FA Cup. Or the League Cup and come third or fourth or second because you, your club's history and tradition is defined by the trophies that you win. But winning that FA Cup, the belief that they will give the players and beating Chelsea the way they beat them after being 1-0 down, coming back and completely dominating the game. Um, you could tell the Fulham, you could tell in the Fulham game, let's be honest, it's a nice opening fixture and it going to Craven Cottage. Fulham's a nice place to go. They're a nice team to play. But that, there was no doubt in those players' minds that they weren't going to win that game. <clears throat> There's none. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think fourth is very, very uh, gettable. And I said, I'm a traditionist. I'd be targeting Europa League. Because we had a... Uh, Olympiakos was a, a complete debacle, wasn't it, in the end, when we, like, in our hands and then, like, gave it away. So, um yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of... The good thing, it's great going into a season with optimism. It's brilliant. You know, why can't you be optimistic? Why can't you dream like high? That's the point of being a football fan, isn't it? Because you have enough times when it's pants. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So you might as well make the most of it like when you're doing well. <clears throat> it's all about... And that win in the FA Cup means that we had a good season last year. If you hadn't have won the FA Cup, it had been poor. So we've had a better season that mob up the road again, winning trophies. And I've, I've got a lot of Spurs mates, right? And I laugh, said, look, even when, when we're not very good, we still win trophies. Peter, we're coming to the closing stages and and, and you've been fantastic with, with some of your answers today. But I, I just want to ask, you guys have got a legend in Arsene Wenger at that club. You guys have got someone who changed the club <clears throat> into the new era, took the club into the new era. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is still a position for him at Arsenal in the current running of that club? No, but the reason being because obviously people would say, why don't you tap into his experience, you know, tap, tap into his knowledge and whatever, but you don't want the shadow of uh, the greatest manager we've ever had over. If the team's not playing very well, everybody then looks up and goes, oh, <clears throat> there's Arsenal in the director's box or, you know, that... It's like the David Moyes situation at Manchester United when he takes over and every time his team runs out, you've got the Alex Ferguson stand staring, <laughs> staring in the face. So, um, yeah, I, I, obviously, he's, he's, like, he's a god. Arsene, he's a god. And he's a very nice, humble man, actually. But I think he wouldn't want to do that either, I don't think. I don't think he'd want to, you know, because then it's if it's not going where it's like, oh, when Arsene was here, oh, we did it that way, we did it that way. Oh, it was better, you know. So I think he's, he's right just to give himself a bit of breathing space, maybe, you know what I mean? Just a little while. Um, and I, I think he's made for an international manager. I think he's absolutely made to be a top international manager. 
Well, let's just hope he gets the opportunity with somebody because that, that wealth of experience that he carries uh, from the Premier League uh, out in Japan and in France, you know, he needs to put into practice somewhere. Um, but we, we just hope that he picks up a club if he still wants to manage. Yeah, now, the, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's the desire. If it, maybe he doesn't want... Because um, people realise managing the beer moth that is Arsenal and being there like 22 years... That takes a lot of toll on you. On on you. Do you know what I mean? And uh, as you said, he completely revamped the club, uh, made it into the modern Arsenal what it is. Um, so I think, like, let's be honest, international manager is like semi-retirement, isn't it? Really, <laughs> you meet up, you go around, you watch your players, you meet up every six or seven weeks, uh, and it's just a matter of like bonding those players together. And he would have instant respect <clears throat> from all the players. So. Um, but he's, he's just a very, I've been lucky enough to meet him a couple of times. He's just an unbelievably intelligent person. Sorry, I didn't quite whatever, um, whatever. Um, Don't worry, that happens to me a lot as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd put it on silent before someone just came in the room or what? Um, uh, it doesn't, do worry. Whatever he decided to do in his life, he'd have been successful. It wouldn't have mattered whether he was in business or banking or politics. I don't know if you know, he speaks seven languages. It's mind-blowing, fluently. And he learned Japanese in, I think it was six to eight months. And that's supposed to be one of the hardest languages to learn. So just he's just got, you know, like brain explosion. He's incredible. A legend, a forward mm. leader, uh, a game changer. That's what he was. That's what he is. Uh, but Perry, just before we go, because uh, we'll be drawing to the end of our show. And, and as I said, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Can you think what was your initiation when you signed for Arsenal? Is it something you can actually talk to us about um, on our show now? It's quite easy. It was like a community club. It was going out and getting absolutely... I was. People don't realise because they know that I like a drink. We had the Tuesday club, didn't we, with Merce, Baldy, Rodders... Um, like Rich, I used to come out with Andy Lincoln, whatever. Um, I was teetotal before I went to Arsenal. I didn't drink. My dad told me when I was a kid, if you want to um, be a footballer, you don't drink and you don't have girlfriends because you've got to concentrate on the game completely. So people feel, I was flipping, honestly, it was like going out with flipping like Motley Crue. It was like, and I was, I was absolutely, first time I went with the, the Tuesday club, I think, oh, I've got to have a couple of beers here. I was, Rat asked after like four pints. <laughs> I was completely, complete. I, I practiced quite a lot and got quite good at it in the end. But um, yeah, so that was basically the initiation. That was going out on the Tuesday club and having a few. Because we were, when I was first there, I wasn't one of the senior players because you had like Charlie Nicholas and Graham Ricks and they were the ones that were out. So I didn't really socialise with them. But then when we became the senior players, then we took over the Tuesday club. Um, and There'd be the five players that I mentioned there, which was the core, but the team spirit that we had, which was incredible, at any one time we'd go to a pub in London somewhere and there'd be 16 to 18 of us all meeting up and having a drink. And some of the guys would go off and do other stuff. You know, there'd be like red arrows, they'd be all over the place. Um, some would go clubbing, some would go dancing, some had girlfriends, some were. But um, when I look back, there's not many teams that would have 16 to 18 players. And only, and it, by the way, it's got a good. It's only when we won. We didn't go out if we got beat. 
<laughs> so, so when you saw us the celebrations, it, we won the game. We was going to go on the lash on the Tuesday, so that's why we was like all going mad because we wouldn't go out. You you haven't earned the right if you draw or get beat. You ain't earned the right to go and enjoy yourself. And quite rightly, fans would get the ump. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. um, that was that was initiated. The Tuesday club was like a, a tough, tough initiation. Trust me. Perry Groves, my friend, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today uh, and to our On The Whistle fans. Thank you for listening to us. We've been blessed to be in the company of an, a true Arsenal legend, um, someone that I've met and enjoyed a good evening with as well. <laughs> cool. It, it, actually, it, it actually gave me a hard time for drinking Carlsberg. <laughs> Driving beer, isn't it? So it's like three point two percent. What's all that about? Oh no, I'll never forget that. I just want to say to our listeners out there, make sure you get onto our Facebook page, our Instagram, our Twitter accounts. Leave us a review. Uh, try and hit us up on our YouTube channel. We appreciate your views. Perry Gross, thank you very much for making the time to come on and talk to us. We we'll hope you have a fantastic evening. Cool, it's been a pleasure. Just a quick one. That is that our Henri Rousseau pet painting behind you. Is that a bit of Rousseau going on there? <laughs> no, when I got married, my sister-in-law... No, it's not, firstly. When I got married... <laughs> I would have thought it if it was. But yeah, you're wrong. When I got married, that's a painting my sister-in-law uh, gave to me. It actually gives me the heebie-jeebies. I mean, it, uh, <laughs> it actually scares me looking at it. It's such a, it's such a Twin Peaks vibe to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a bit surreal, isn't it? It's like... Ooh. Perry, <laughs> thank man. you so much for your time, man. You take it easy. Pleasure. Cheers. Come on, you gooners. <laughs>